All right, so do you know who David and Ethel Rosenberg were? You all know who these people are? These are probably the two most famous spies and traitors ever to be executed uh, in the United States. Uh, these were American citizens, and they were convicted of spying against the U.S. Uh, in 1951. Uh, they were convicted of spying, selling secrets uh, to the Russians, not only during the World War II uh, era, but after, in the Cold War period that followed. And, and they sold top secret information like our radar and our sonar and our jet fighters and the plans that we were developing for nuclear weapons uh, sold those secrets to the Soviets. Uh, and Julius uh, Rosenberg had access to all of this information because he was working for the army in the labs that were developing this technology. And so he had access to that. And his wife Ethel had a brother uh, whose name was David Greenglass. Uh, and he was working on the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project, of course, is the testing of the uh, atomic bomb that they were doing in uh, New Mexico uh, at the time. That's the, 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 uh, the Manhattan Project is what the movie Oppenheimer uh, was made about that was just uh, uh, came out over the summer. And so uh, between them, they turned over countless thousands of documents to uh, the Soviets in World War II and the Cold War period that followed. Well, in June of 1950, the FBI finally caught on to Greenglass and they arrested him. And what do you do when you get arrested? You sing like a canary, of course. And so that's what he did. He, he ratted out his brother-in-law. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, Julius was arrested in July. Then Ethel was arrested in August. Uh, and and uh, David, uh, Ethel's brother, testified against them uh, at their trial after taking a plea deal for himself. Uh, so uh, all around class act kind of guy. Uh, so after the trial, uh, both Julius and Ethel were sentenced to death. And the sentencing judge blamed them not only for spying, but for the entire Korean War that started in 1950. Here's what the judge had to say about them. Your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea, with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000, and who knows but that millions more innocent people may pay the price of your treason. So this is Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. How did they get away with spying for so long? Well, they had the perfect cover, didn't they? They had the perfect cover. Julius was a respected scientist. So was Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. And so they looked like good guys, even though they were Russian spies who endangered Americans, and they were leading double lives. And that takes us to where we are in Mark chapter 12 uh, this week. Uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, the, the teachers of the law who Jesus has been debating with in this last week of his life uh, are like the Rosenbergs. By all appearances, they are good guys, and they had the perfect cover. Uh, they were uh, well-positioned in, in the high positions in the local synagogue. Some even served on the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish highest court. Uh, and they were well-respected by the people. Uh, many uh, Jews growing up aspired to be like these teachers of the law. But, but though they looked like the good guys, they were actually the bad guys. They were leading double lives. Uh, publicly, they, they held out this, this outward piety, but privately, they devoured widows' homes. They denied their Messiah. They plotted murder against him. And the people, of course, they couldn't expose them. They, they didn't know. But Jesus was able to see right through them. He saw their hypocrisy. He saw it, and he exposed it. So who is it that finds God's approval? Who finds God's approval? 
Is it those who look good on the outside but inside are full of corruption? No, that's not who finds God's approval. That's fake faith. People with true faith uh, realize that, that it's, it's not what you look like on, on the outside, but it's the attitude of your heart that makes one somebody with true faith. Uh, people with true faith love God. They're not thinking of exalting themselves. They're thinking about exalting God. And so we've been at a mark for a couple of weeks, so let's just remember where we are. We're in the last week of Jesus's life, right? This is the Passion Week. He's already uh, come to Jerusalem uh, for uh, what is going to be the Passion Week. He's had the triumphal entry. And let's just think about what he's been doing in this last week of his life since he has entered uh, into the city of Jerusalem. He's been doing two things primarily. The first thing is that he has been claiming authority. The first thing he does, he rides in on a donkey, right? That is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, uh, of how Messiah would come to Jerusalem. The second thing he does is he, he accuses them of making his father's house a den of robbers, and then he clears the temple courts, right? Another claim of great authority. The leaders demand by what authority he's doing these things, and he refuses to answer their questions. He says, I'll tell you what, you answer me one question. John's baptism, is that from God or men? You answer me that, and I'll answer your question. And when they wouldn't answer him, he wouldn't answer theirs. Another claim of authority. And then he takes Psalm 118, and he applies this to himself. The, the stone that the builders rejected, uh, this stone has become the chief cornerstone. And so he's applying Psalm 118 to himself, saying that though you reject me, I am the stone on which uh, God will build uh, his church. And so uh, all of these are great claims to authority. And so he's shown already that he is claiming authority as their Messiah and over the temple courts and over the temple itself by the things that he does. So he's teaching on his authority. The second thing he's doing during this week is he's teaching on true faith. What does true faith look like? In the parable of the withered fig tree, you can ask for whatever you want in my name, and, and it will be done for you. Prayer is a hallmark of a true faithful disciple. On the question of the authority of Caesar, uh, Jesus says, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his name is stamped on that coin. But you give everything else to God, and that means your entire life because God has stamped you with his very image. So you give all that to God. That is what a true disciple does. And Jesus taught the two greatest commandments. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you are to love others as you love yourself. And so he's teaching on, on two things, right? Authority and true faith. And this is what the messages of his last week have been about. And here in this final passage, his, his final public teaching before the, 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 uh, what we'll see in chapter 13, which is pre his predictions about the future, and then into the passion narrative itself, this is the last passage. And so what he's doing here is he's going to contrast uh, the fake faith of these teachers of the law with the true faith of this one poor widow. And so uh, what I want us to see today is that there is no middle road. There is no middle road of, of being a person of true faith. We're not like Russian spies who lead double lives, who pretend to be something on the outside, but inwardly we're doing something completely different. There are only two options. You either believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you live your life glorifying him, uh, putting yourself behind everything that, that would, would uh, mean that, that, that you are exalting him in all things, uh, loving him with your whole soul, heart, mind, and strength. That's one option. And then the other option is to be his enemy. And that means that you are sitting on Jesus' throne. 
uh, and that you have claimed his rightful place uh, in your own heart, refusing to submit to him uh, and turning to him for salvation. And so only two options there. So I just want us, as we're, as we're thinking about this, this sermon, to keep this question in our minds uh, as we read about the teachers of the law and we read about this poor widow. Am I more like the teachers of the law, uh, leading a double life, uh, kind of half-heartedly giving myself to God, uh, but you know, not really uh, on the inside, not giving my best, faking commitment to Jesus, or even worse, uh, not being a real disciple, just pretending to be one? Uh, so am I more like that, or am I more like the poor widow? That's what I want us to consider as we, as we uh, go through this today. So let's start with, uh, first, the ignorance of Jesus' enemies. Uh, this is verses 35 to 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. So you'll recall uh, over the various passages that we've considered in the, in the previous weeks that, that Jesus dealt with various different groups, right? The chief priests and the scribes asked by what authority he did these things. Then the Pharisees and Herodians come and question him about uh, the issue of, of paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Sadducees come and, and test him on the issues of the resurrection. They're all trying to trap him in something that he might say. And so now Jesus lumps them all together. He calls them together uh, the teachers of the law. And now he says, what do you teachers of the law say? You've been testing me on what I say. What do you say? Uh, how do you answer this question that I'm asking you here? So he's teaching publicly in the temple courts, uh, and he's questioning them about the identity of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? And so the question in verse 35 is, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, that's a pretty easy one to answer, actually, because the scriptures are full of references to the Messiah being the son of David. In Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, we know that, that uh, God promises David that, that one would sit on his throne forever and ever, and so a descendant of David would sit on that throne. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 refer to God raising up a righteous branch uh, from David who will reign and act wisely as king. And we could go to passages in uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea and Amos, all that say the same thing. He would be a descendant of David. So that part of the teaching is not controversial and it's not hard to understand. He would come from the line of David. But beginning in verse 36, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to expand their thinking about who this Messiah would be. It's not just that he's going to be a descendant uh, in a linear fashion, uh, you know, genetically, from, from David. It's more than that. Yes, their Messiah was going to come from David's line, but he's also David's Lord. And he wants them to start thinking in those terms. What does that mean? Jesus wanted them to see that Jesus was a lot more uh, than just a descendant of David. There were lots and lots of descendants of David, right? I mean, he lived a thousand years ago. Can you imagine what that family tree must have looked like? But Jesus is the unique one in that while he is a descendant of David, he is also David's Lord. Now, how can somebody be a descendant of David and yet be his Lord at the same time? Well, the only way he can do that is that he be human in the one sense, that he be a human descendant, but also that he be divine and supernatural to have the ability to be Lord over somebody who lived a thousand years before him. That can't be explained any other way. 
Now, when we look at Psalm 110, it's a little confusing unless you know who the players are. It's hard to tell who is talking and who is being talked to. Uh, so David wrote Psalm 10. We know that because if you look at Psalm 10, there's a little superscription that says a Psalm of David. And then, of course, Jesus here affirms that, saying that David wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what's happening here is that the, the, the Holy Spirit has revealed a conversation uh, that David almost overhears in a way. The Lord said to my Lord. So who is speaking here? Well, it's a conversation between God, first of all, uh, and, and uh, when we look at this in the original Hebrew, if you look at the original Hebrew in Psalm 110, uh, the first word for Lord is Yahweh. So the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord there is Yahweh. This is God the Father, uh, the covenant God of Israel, uh, who is doing the speaking. And he says to my Lord, second Lord, is a different word. It's the word Adonai. Now, the word Adonai can mean God, and it often does in the scriptures, but it can also mean uh, master, it can also mean king, it can also mean lord. Uh, but whatever it means, David clearly recognizes that the one that Yahweh is speaking to is superior to David because he is David's lord. So, God gave David's lord authority to sit at God's right hand, the very highest place of authority. There's no higher place of authority than that until God will one day take all of the enemies of this Lord and put them under the Messiah's feet. Now, David never had this authority, right? He was a great king. He was a very powerful king, but he was an earthly king. Uh, and he lived and he died, uh, but he was only an earthly king. And David would not have referred to a descendant of his as his own Lord unless this descendant was greater than him. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't come right out and say, I am David's son and Lord. He doesn't do that, does he? What he's doing here is to try to get them to expand their minds, to think bigger about who this Messiah is, the identity of the Messiah, because they have in their minds a military king who would come from David and be like David, raise up a kingdom, uh, an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is saying it's more than that. The identity of the Messiah is more than that. It's bigger than that. He's trying to get them to connect the dots between what it means to be David's Lord and then get them to realize that, that Jesus himself is claiming to be David's Lord. And if they could understand that, well, they would really have connected the dots and they would get that Jesus was making a very strong claim to authority. He is David's son, but he is also David's Lord. And God will place all enemies under his feet. That is a strong claim of authority right there. And so what is Jesus doing? He's showing publicly here in the temple courts that he understands and knows the scriptures better than they do. These are the teachers of the law, and they don't understand it. They have an incomplete and insufficient understanding of what their own scriptures mean. They didn't recognize the very fulfillment of these scriptures standing right before them. They didn't recognize him for who he was. And so Jesus is using Psalm 110 to try and show them the full scope and magnitude of what it means uh, to be the Messiah, to be David's son, and to be David's Lord. So they're ignorant about their scriptures, first of all. And meanwhile, the people listened with delight. They loved to listen to him. Now, I don't know if they understood it any better than the teachers of the law did, but they loved to hear Jesus speak and confound the teachers of the law. So ignorance is one thing, but next Jesus goes on to make these people out to be his enemies. And that's what we'll see in verses 38 to 40, the fake faith of Jesus' enemies. As he taught, 
Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So I want us to see the deliberate connection that Mark makes between the teachers of the law who are ignorant of the scriptures, right? He mentions these teachers of the law in verses 35 to 37. And now he's talking about Jesus warning about these teachers of the law who are not only ignorant, but they are enemies. They are evil and enemies of God in verses 38 to 40. So first comes the warning, verse 38. Watch out for the teachers of the law. Now, that would have been shocking for the regular average Joe uh, in the temple courts to hear. Right? What do you mean, watch out for the teachers of the law? We, we kind of hang on their every word, right? Uh, but Jesus was saying, no, you got to be careful for these guys because they are hypocrites. They're leading double lives. They, they, for all appearances, appear to be these pious disciples in their beautiful flowing robes and their tassels and the way they, uh, the way they hold themselves, but they're really God's enemies on the inside. You know, last week when David Schiller was here, he was, he was preaching all about pride, right? Diagnosing pride, how to see it, uh, how, to, how to handle it. Uh, these guys, these teachers of the law, I mean, if you could put up a poster of what it means to be prideful, that's what these guys were. This is pride on steroids. These guys were just all about receiving these greetings in the marketplaces and being bowed down to and respected and, and, and uh, just to, to hold that position and have people acknowledge it. Now, we can just imagine them getting decked out in their best robes and you know, carefully putting on the longest tassels and parading themselves through the streets to be noticed, seeking honor and glory from men. Uh, we can envision them taking the best seats in the synagogue, right, shaking hands with everybody, going real slow, being sure everybody them, notices them, and, and taking their high position and all pretending to have this piety. Uh, but they were truly corrupt on the inside. They were corrupt on the inside because privately what we'll see is they devour widows' houses. Well, what does that mean? It's hard to know exactly what that means, but according to rabbinic law, these teachers of the law were not allowed to receive payment uh, for their services. And so they depended on generosity and hospitality from others. And so it's not hard to imagine, and I think what Jesus is implying, is that these people figured out ways to, uh, to, to uh, move themselves into the graces of poor widows and perhaps be named as beneficiaries of wills or to take great gifts in exchange for prayers, uh, something like that, uh, just manipulating people and accepting these gifts for their services. And, and so they're making this big public profession of religious piety, but they're living double lives. They preyed on the weak, the vulnerable, the defenseless widows, bankrupting them for their own gain, rather than protecting them and providing for them, which is what they were supposed to do as leaders of the temple. In Psalm 110 that we just read, Jesus said, uh, sit at my, or God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. Well, who are Jesus's enemies? These teachers of the law are Jesus's enemies, right? These teachers of the law ignored the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourselves. They didn't do either one of these things, right? And, and Jesus said, on, all, on those two commandments, all the others hinge. So if they didn't do those two, they weren't doing any of the commandments. They did not love 
the people. They loved themselves. They did not provide for this widow. They loved themselves and took the money for themselves. And so they lived as lords rather than servants. And, and they were willing to capitalize on their position uh, to line their own pockets. Uh, and so the hypocrisy that Jesus calls out makes them enemies. And they will all be Jesus's footstool when he receives his kingdom on earth. And so Jesus says, watch out for these teachers of the law. He told them about the double lives that these people were leading. He says, watch out for these guys and know that these men will be punished most severely. Most severely. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, one of the verses that can keep me up at night if I think about it too long is James chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, a stricter judgment, right? So as I stand up here and preach the word to you, uh, God examines me uh, to see my heart. And if I am not preaching uh, correctly, accurately, uh, and with the right motives, I may incur a stricter judgment. That's terrifying, isn't it? To think that, uh, and I have to get up here every Sunday and do this. (laughs) So, but as a teacher of the law, as a teacher of the word, my responsibilities to God are to proclaim the word. Uh, to extol the greatness of the kingdom, to to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray for the souls uh, of men and women who are lost, to to ask that the Holy Spirit would change lives. Uh, This is what what I am supposed to do uh, in in my role as pastor here. And, And for as long as I live, I pray that I will do that, be faithful to his calling, to his word, and to you. Uh, who I've been given charge over. And I don't want to have fake faith or lead a double life. Now, since I'm a believer, uh, I think what, what, what James 3.1 says means that I will incur a stricter judgment, meaning perhaps loss of rewards. But what he's talking about here with these people, are, these are enemies. These are not believers. And so what he's talking about as far as those folks go, that's stricter judgment in hell. Now, what that looks like, I can't pretend to know, uh, but I don't want to know. And that sounds like not a place that you want to be, but that's where they find themselves. And the church itself has seen many frauds over the past 2,000 years, right? And, and they also are enemies of Jesus, and they will be his footstool too. So as far as you and I are concerned, you know, God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. And with that comes responsibility, doesn't it? He's given us a great deal of knowledge, and he's given us the means to communicate uh, his word and his will uh, to other people. And so uh, God help those who have these gifts and then abuse them, uh, use them for financial gain, or or don't speak the the truth rightly. And so God will reserve greater judgment uh, for people who do those kinds of things. And uh, I find that to be inspiring and terrifying at the same time. But this should affect how we live, right? He's placed us in positions to make a difference in other people's lives. And we ought to be trying to do that uh, every day. We ought to contemplate all that God has given us and how we can use uh, the knowledge and the positions he's placed us in uh, to be a people who, who can communicate his word and advance his kingdom. So the teachers of the law, he put in tremendous positions to be able to do this, and yet they proved to be his enemies uh, by living this hypocrisy and these double lives that they were leading. And next, Jesus describes the opposite end of the spectrum. Now he's going to talk about this poor widow uh, who stands in very stark contrast to these teachers of the law. So we'll look at the real faith of the poor widow, verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. 
And many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So we said a second ago that the connection between verses uh, 35 to 37 and 38 to 40 is Jesus' mention of the teachers of the law. Now the connection between verses 38 and 40 and 41 to 44 is Jesus' use of the word widow. In verses uh, 38 to 40, uh, the widows are, are victims, right? They're, they're victims of, of the uh, theft of the teachers of the law. But here, in verses 41 to 44, we have a lone widow who stands as a victor, uh, a woman of true faith. And so Jesus is now in the area uh, of the temple that is called the temple, uh, the, the courts of women. I know it's hard to see here, but this is the, this is the women's courtyard here. And somewhere <clears throat> in that area, they kept the treasury. And uh, that looked like 13 trumpet-shaped boxes, they said, is, is what uh, was there. And people would line up and they would throw their money in uh, to pay either the temple tax or to give alms or to, uh, to support the temple ministry itself. And so Jesus sat there uh, for a while and, and he's watching. And he's watching all these people come and they're throwing in, making a showing of them throwing in their money. Uh, and after that happens, this poor widow comes along, right? You can imagine her, you know, maybe uh, old and gray and stooped over, and she's making her way uh, to this, this temple uh, offering box, and she drops in two small coins uh, that were worth next to nothing. The, the, the uh, scripture says uh, worth a few cents. That's a translation for us. Uh, but it wasn't even enough to buy a handful of flour. That's how little money this was. And so Jesus noticed that she put in more than all the others. She put in more than all the others, even though it was only a little, because it was all she had to live on. All she had to live on. And so this woman is, is shown up against the, the, the blackness of the teachers of the law. She stands as a shining light because she gave like this. This is a poor widow. Now, the law requires that the temple and the priests and the teachers of the law take care of this woman. And yet, here she is. How does she get to the point where she's putting in her last two copper coins? How does that happen? Because the teachers of the law were corrupt. They weren't doing their jobs. They were not taking care of this woman. They were not doing their duty. They're busy, busy robbing widows instead of taking care of them. And so this woman has been wronged by the keepers of the temple. And yet, here she is still giving the last coins that she has because she trusts God and she trusts that he will make good out of it. And so this is the contrast. Uh, these teachers of the law, they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogue, but Jesus knows their hearts and he knows the heart of this widow. She calls no attention to herself. She doesn't seek her own glory. She's not living a double life of showy hypocrisy. She gave all she had to live on. And so while these teachers of the law are not fulfilling the two greatest commandments, this woman is. She shows that she loves God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength because she gives all she has by supporting the temple, and this is how she shows her love to God. She doesn't even hold back enough to buy bread for herself. She gives it all. And so as Jesus has been teaching throughout Mark, uh, it, to, to, to love God is not a half-hearted thing. It's not a thing we can do on Sunday for an hour. It requires all of us, 
All, every part of us, every part of our being, every fiber of us uh, has to be devoted to him with full dedication. And it may cost us everything uh, to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus never promised that this would be easy, but he did promise that the rewards would be great. Now, that's not to say that you and I need to empty our savings account and give everything that we have to the church. That's not what is being meant here. It's just to show what a true disciple looks like. God wants us to give sacrificially, for sure, but he wants us to give responsibly as well. I had a professor in seminary who said, you know, you can give all your money to the church, but then you're going to become a ward of the state, and that's not good either. You have to give sensibly. You have to give responsibly, but sacrificially as well. And so it's not really how much you give, it's how much you keep for yourself, right? 10% looks like something for some people, and it looks like something else for other people. And that's why Warren Wiersbe said, it's not the portion, it's the proportion that you give that matters. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says it like this, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So you get to decide what you're going to give. And only you know what is sacrificial to you. Uh, And you know that by praying to God and and figuring out to you what is sacrificial. So this episode, as I said, marks the end of Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel. And I think it's fitting that his ministry finishes on the Temple Mount, because when we get into uh, chapter 13, uh, we're going to see that that as Jesus teaches on the Temple Mount, next he's going to preach about how all this is going to be gone, right? See all these amazing stones, Jesus? Look at all these incredible stones. I tell you, not one of these stones will remain on top of the other. We'll see that when we get to chapter uh, 13. And so Jesus is drawing clear lines between who are true disciples and who have fake faith. And for the teachers of the law, what we'll see in chapter 13 is that judgment, destruction, condemnation all awaited them because they rejected their Savior. They refused to become his disciples. But for some of those others that we've met in the gospel, like the woman with the hemorrhage, uh, like Jairus, uh, like blind Bartimaeus, like this widow who gave the last of what she had, uh, rewards awaited. They were true believers who loved God and lived for him. So who has God's approval? Jesus flipped the common assumptions, right? Everybody thought, oh, it's the rich people. It's the ones who, they seem to have God's blessing. They're the ones who are going to receive uh, everything that God has. And, And Jesus shows that it's not the rich. It's not the religious experts. It's not those trained in the law, those who walk around in long robes and receive respectful greetings in the marketplace that, that, that please God. It's those who do the will of God, those who are right with God on the inside who receive his favor. Jesus said it all the way back in Mark chapter 3. Remember all the way back then when we were preaching uh, in Mark chapter 3, uh, people came to him and said, your, your mother, your brother, and your sisters are outside. And Jesus said, who are my mother, my brothers, and sisters? Those who do the will of God those who do the will of God. Who is a true disciple? Those who do the will of God. God's not looking for showy religious behavior from religious hypocrites who are leading double lives. He's looking for full-hearted love, commitment, and devotion to him. One that doesn't seek to glorify self, but glorify him. 
Now, how do you and I do that as sinful people who, you know, more than likely have never done a single thing for purely altruistic reasons? I'll put my hand up and say, often that's true of me. How do we do this? How do we live for God? How do we exalt him at all times? Well, I think the first thing is that we have to remember what it costs God to save us. We have to remember that God has given us, Jesus Christ, his own son, to live this perfect life that we could never live and then die on a cross uh, for our sins in our place. That means that we are not worthy of God's salvation. We are not worthy of God's favor. We are not worthy of his approval. We're not worthy of the gift that he has given us. And the only way we will ever defeat our own pride that constantly rises up is to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel. There is nothing good in us. There is nothing good in us. There is nothing good in us. But wait, God, no, there is nothing good in us. Nothing. We are not worthy of this salvation. And that's why I preach the gospel every week. Every single week I say something like, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead because we have a tendency to think that we are all that. And we're not all that. We're nothing. Jesus is the one who did this for us. So we are sinners with nothing to justify ourselves. It's by Jesus' blood alone that we can be saved. These teachers of the law were in love with themselves. They were in love with their robes and their respectful greetings and their seats in the marketplace and all of that. But they did not love God. So let's not let that be said of us. Let's remember our lowly position, remember what it costs God to save us, and remember how much we've been given. We have not earned any of this. God has given this to us as a gift. So if we can keep that in mind, then remember that true disciples live for God with hearts of gratitude. Now, the cost of discipleship is very high. Uh, True disciples know that God has stamped us with his very image and that we belong to him, and therefore we live for him, loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we do that? Do we do that? So the question I asked at the very beginning, are we more like the teachers of the law, or are we more like this poor widow? We need to examine our hearts and ask that question. When we stand before God one day, uh, God is not going to condemn us because, as Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God will test our works. And if we have this attitude that this poor widow had, our works will withstand the test. And I pray that that will be true of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this very difficult message. And Lord, we want to look more like the poor widow than we look like the teachers of the law. And Lord, sometimes we fail and we ask your forgiveness when we do. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to shape our hearts, continue to mold us and chisel away at this pride that is so insidious that eats away at us, Lord, and and makes us think that we're something more than we are. Lord, help to show us how little we are and how great Jesus is and help us to live according to the way this poor widow lived, living sacrificially for you, Lord, and and to show others how they can get into this glorious kingdom that you have prepared for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.